Okay, stop loving on each other. <laughs> Welcome to Upper Room Frisco. I'm Jeremy Shuck. My wife Ashley and I and our four kids call this our church home. We're so honored to be here, worship with you. I'm also the residency director, which is our ministry school. Oh, yeah, I got a section. I have a whole section of students. Hey, residency students, why don't you stand up? <clears throat> Now stay standing, stay standing. Yes, they are worthy of applause and honor, but I also want you to look at them, remember them, recognize them, and then go up and ask them for prophetic words. <laughs> don't, don't let them sneak out the back now. We've, <laughs> we've, got, a, <laughs> we've got a watchman at the door to stop you. Okay. Um, yeah, the residency has been so, so fun and anointed and just watching uh, Jesus transform like he always loves to do. Okay, so we are here every 5 p.m. on Sunday. Uh, we're also here Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, in the evening for prayer and worship, 6 to 8 p.m. That's Tuesdays and Thursdays, 6 to 8. And we now have a Saturday morning prayer set, 9 to 11 a.m., every first and third Saturday beginning this month at Ron and Annie Bracken's house. 1041 Lake Trail Drive. I feel like there should be like a, a jingle to help us remember that. 1041. If you want to have some fun, come to 1041 Lake Trail Drive if you want to come alive. <laughs> 1041 Lake Trail Drive. First and third Saturdays. Okay, inner healing. If you're interested in inner healing, um, or if you don't know that you're interested in he inner healing, but your friend knows you need inner healing, we have appointments <laughs> available every Tuesday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. For more information and to schedule an appointment, go to upperroomfrisco.com. Alexis, our youth pastor. Hey, everyone. Um, just really quick, we have two events coming up uh, for the youth. Um, one of them is September 29th. That's this Saturday coming up. It's, for, it's 5.30. There'll be food provided. It's our picnic, and we'll also be doing awesome games. So I would love to see the youth there. And then the second one is a, um, it's a conference in Fort Worth. It's called The Flood. It's with Convergence Church, uh, David uh, Fish. Um, they're going to be hosting um, Upper Room. Uh, Michael uh, Miller Freeland will be there. Michael Koulianos will be there. And our youth are going to be going as a retreat. So it will be an overnight thing. It's $45. That includes transportation. That includes hotel. And that also includes the entry fee. Um, so if you have any questions, you can email me. I think my email is somewhere up there. Um, yeah, if you have any questions, email me, um, let me know, and I'll love to communicate anything that uh, you would like to know. Thank you. Thanks, Alexis. Does your last name mean house of the Lord, Villa Senor, like house of the sir? Oh, cool. All right, just, just take it, man. Just own it. It's a prophetic word. <laughs> Okay, there are three ways to give. Offerings can be placed in the baskets located in the back. There's a basket there, a basket there. Uh, you can also give online. We have new online giving instructions. Go to upperroomfrisco.com, click give, click one-time donation or recurring giving. If recurring, you may be prompted to set up an account in Planning Center. Select UR North from the drop-down menu. Or the third way to give is you can text. The word give to 206-859-9402. Uh, the best way to keep track of your giving is to set up an account. Um, I think that is everything. Michael Hatzmiller, why don't you come on up here? Bless us with the word of the Lord. I love you, man. Welcome back. guys uh it's been a i feel like it's been a while since i've been here um i mean i think it actually has been a while i think i've been gone for like three sundays uh so i'm back from paternity leave we just had a new baby girl her name is caroline avery miller yeah. uh she's going by the name Cara, or avery i should remember this i haven't slept i don't know if you picked up on that that's her right there this is like day one, she's out of the hospital, or day two, actually. 
Um, yeah, she's cute. She didn't come out like an alien, which I'm thankful for. They always come out a little bit like a little alienation. That's her. She's so sweet. And check out this next picture. This is my favorite. So Archer, he, he hasn't quite learned like feminine or, or masculine pronouns yet. So he just says things like, hold it. I hold it. I noticed he learned the word I very quickly. He's got a personal pronoun, but the other ones he just doesn't know. So anyway, uh, she was six pounds, 15 ounces, uh, 20 inches long, which is just slightly bigger than Archer was, born four days late. She was supposed to come on Labor Day. And how cool would that have been if she was born on Labor Day? But uh, it didn't happen. So um, yeah. Mom's recovering. It's been quite a journey. Um, the birth was absolutely supernatural. Um, on Friday morning, Sarah and I went to go get coffee at one of my favorite shops. And on the way there, she's like, huh, I feel uh, something's happening. She's like, but it's not a contraction. She's like, I don't know what it is. And I'm like, okay, well, if let's just you know, time it, and something like that happens again, then maybe it is a contraction, and we should pay attention to it. And so sure enough, it was happening like every five minutes. And so uh, we're leaving the coffee shop. We, we got it to go, and I, I called up my mom, who was in, over in Fort Worth, and I was like, she's just in town visiting some friends. Um, I said, hey, I think we need you to come to the house. I'm not entirely sure if Sarah's in labor but if she is, they seem like they're really close together, the contractions. So just come on over to the house. So, so we get back to the house, and uh, I'm, I decided I'll, I was going to take Archer to get some food, and, and I was going to come back. And so, um, and by that point, I'm sure my mom would get, get there. So I left, came back, and Sarah was like, no, no, definitely having contractions. We, this is, it's time. She goes, when's your mom going to get here? So I call her up 15 minutes out. Uh, my mom gets there, we, you know, get everything in the car, and we head over to the birthing center where um, Sarah's going to give birth, and I'm not kidding you, uh, we got there, I think Sarah started experiencing those, those sort of little contractions around 10.30 a.m., but she started having, like, real contractions around 11.30, and we got to the um, birthing center right around noon, and baby girl was born uh, at 3... 39 p.m. So we were there for three and a half hours. Um, she was in, I mean, literally labor for four hours, maybe. Uh, and, and I'm telling you, it was supernatural because she pushed twice. And that was it. First time she pushed, I didn't even know she was pushing. I'm like, hey, that's our baby's head. Wait a minute, are you pushing? And the midwife was like, wait a minute, is she pushing? And then is rushing to get her gloves on, and Sarah pushes again, and She's holding our baby girl. I mean, it was, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. This was, this was crazy. Um, and we went, we were home by 7 p.m. that night. Didn't stay in the hospital. We literally were home by that, by that evening. Um, and our, our friends, the, the Hans, who are elders here, were the first ones to celebrate with us, which let me just brag on them for a second. Uh, how many of you were here when the Hans shared a bit of their story um, about a month ago. Okay, so I, I got to brag on them because the strength of character that couple has uh, to show up at our house and, and celebrate the birth of our child and bring us a meal amidst them having a miscarriage and, and still in a place of mourning. Um, I mean, it's just such a resolve to, to celebrate with your friends. And I, I just, I couldn't appreciate them more. I thought, how sweet is that? And I made sure to thank them because I know how difficult that's got to be amidst the loss to celebrate a new life. Um, it was just a sweet time to, to pray with them and, and for them to give thanks. Um, in the next week, we, we, I mean, everything just went perfectly. And then the stuff hit the fan. And you know what I mean by the stuff, right? Um, we, uh, I, I wake up at... 3 a.m. and my wife is, is saying, hey, honey, I don't feel good. And um, she was experiencing some hemorrhaging. And so we call our, our doctor, say, hey, what's this? And 
Next thing I know, um, Sarah's passed out on the bathroom floor and we have to call an ambulance to come and get her. And I am in the moment of sheer terror. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you have no idea what's going on and you're completely out of control and don't know what to do. Um, so I got raw really quickly. <laughs> uh, I swear that I want you guys to know what's happening because it's just been a, it's been a tough couple weeks and we're on the other side of it now. We really are. Um, but I, it also, I want you to be a part of this process with me. You know, this, this community is new. Like we really are. Most of us don't know each other. Matter of fact, how many of you have been here for a while and you think like, I really don't feel plugged in yet. Anybody? Okay, come on, put your hand up. There's nothing to be ashamed of. We're just to acknowledge that. That's true. That's happening. <laughs> it's because we're a new community. Um, I'm actively working on a solution to that to help us get more uh, in touch with who each other are. Um, but I want to let you in on my process so you can know what I'm going through uh, in the midst of all of this. So uh, we, we go to the, the emergency room. Literally, she's stabilized. They send us home the next morning. Uh, fortunately, my mom was still at the house with us watching my son Archer and uh, we get back home and literally the same thing happens. I mean, hemorrhaging again, passes out on the bathroom floor. Uh, I get her into the bed and we, she has then been bedridden and not allowed to get out of the bed for the next 24 hours until she stabilizes again. And, um, and so we went through the next week just every day making sure that everything is done, that Sarah's not overdoing herself and or overdoing herself and recovering. And so we're still sort of in that place. She's not in the bed only. She's out and about, but uh, she hasn't left the house. Uh, we're just making sure to be extra careful because of how difficult the recovery has been. Um, the toughest thing about this is, is uh, I think for Sarah, she's been grieving. Like this was such a supernatural birth. I mean, just absolutely supernatural. And she has been afraid that it would steal our story. Like the story that God did in Avery's birth. Um, and, and I mean, I, I'm here to tell you, like, I don't believe that, that this is God. I don't believe that his, this is his best plan for my wife and I and our, and our child. Um, I don't. And I, I know that that's common. We all think like, you know, God is in control. He, he allows things to happen and yada, yada, yada. But I, I'm telling you right now, this is not the story God is writing for my family. I, I wholeheartedly believe that there's an enemy who's come to steal, literally. Um, something so amazingly supernatural, and then the follow-up, some, something so terrible and scary. Um, in the midst of that, I've been super thankful for this community, uh, for the many of you who've showed up and brought us meals, um, from the phone calls and text messages and uh, we just had an amazing amount of support and actually had to turn support down because of how many people have been available to us. Um, the Millers called us up. And uh, when I say that this was an enemy who did this, I, I'm not lying when I say that. Like, I, I felt the presence of an enemy come in and try to rip my family apart. Um, the Millers, when they prayed for us, they were rebuking a, a spirit of fear that had come in. And, and, and it came. Like, my wife was terrified to go to the bathroom after that. Um, I think the, the shock and trauma, so baby girl, you know, no more than a week old has got a cold, like sniffles and all that. I, I got some sort of lymphatic infection, like all of my lymph nodes are completely swollen right now on this right side and the back of my head is just sensitive even to the touch. Um, I mean, it's just weird, just weird stuff. Uh, now listen, I'm, I'm as crazy it is, it is, as it is. Like I've actually watched God bring healing in the midst of feeling infirmed. Uh, Alexis and I were at a church of, I guess it's about 5,000. They have two campuses. We were at Beltway Baptist or Beltway Park Church in Abilene, Texas. We went there on, on Wednesday as my mentor was preaching and he was having me do some demonstration for the prophetic and healing. I called a lady out, uh, out of a church of, I think there was 1,500 people at this meeting, uh, maybe more. But I called her out. I told her that she came to the Lord two years ago, that, that she had to leave behind a bunch of relationships when she came to the Lord, that, um, that God is bringing redemption to that. And then I, then I pointed out 
the pain she had in her body. I said, you've got pain that starts up here in the right side of your neck. It travels down through your arm. Prayed for her in front of everybody, and she gets healed in front of everybody. And everything I'd said was totally true. She came to the Lord two years ago, had to sacrifice a lot of relationships for that transition to happen. Um, and the Lord was doing a work of redemption. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Like you're in the midst of feeling infirmed, you're under spiritual attack, and yet God is still using you to do miracles in the midst of it. So I, I had this belief, and I, I'm, I'm hoping it's a belief that you'll adopt with me. When the enemy comes to steal something from you, you go get something of his. Like that, that's how we respond to this. Seriously. Um, again, I, I, I want to comment on a couple other things because I, I mentioned this bit about community here. Um, you know, in the early church, to be, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, we hear this story about this, this man who was in, in immorality. And we're told that Paul hands him over to Satan. Now, in the early church, to be handed over to Satan was another way of saying excommunicated or kicked out of the church. That means to not be a part of a believing community was to be in the domain of the enemy. Did you know that? That, that eternal life took place within community. Now, um, I don't know how my family would have made it the way we have, I mean, as, as well as we have in the last couple of weeks, had we not had community. And so for those of you who are struggling to find community within this community, please understand, I know how important it is. I, I'm working actively to get you a solution to that. In the meantime, here's what I'm asking you to do. Uh, don't wait for someone to invite you to something. Invite yourself. Seriously, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I don't know where we get this in our culture that it's rude to invite ourselves out to things. That's not rude. I'm just going to go and say, that's okay here. Cool? Um, uh, again, it's because I believe community is life. It really is. Um, that that's, that's what it means to have life, an abundant life. It's to be in fellowship with other believers, to be in fellowship with Jesus. And we are his representatives here on this earth. Uh, the closest thing that most people will see to Jesus is many of you in this room. Do you hear me? So, um, that said, oh gosh, I mean, there's a couple other people I want to thank. I, we even had uh, Eric Royals came over and mowed my lawn. I mean, like, as silly and stupid as it is, do you know how meaningful that was to us? Like my wife, one of the things she has to do is sit in our bed, and the only sh thing she has to look at is our backyard, which was overgrown by weeds. And so Eric comes in and mows our backyard. I mean, it's just things like that. I, I just have to brag on people. People are worthy of honor, and they need to know it. So um, I say all this because I, I want to talk about, uh, I, I mentioned on Facebook today, how many of you are on the, the are following the Upper Room Facebook page, Upper Room Frisco? Get on there. If you're not following it, start following it. Sometimes we'll put on updates up there. Uh, but I, I mentioned that I was going to be here tonight, and I was going to preach about two competing views of God that are incompatible. These two views of God do not work together. Um, now, Bill, Bill Johnson says this, and, uh, and I'm going to disagree with Bill, not so much in what he means, but in how he phrases it. Uh, Bill will say, and by the way, I love Bill Johnson. If you've never heard Bill Johnson, go listen to him. His podcasts are great. It is good stuff. But he'll say this, uh, God is in charge, but not in control. And what he means is, is that, that God is literally delegating authority and he's in charge of those who he's in authority over, but he's not meticulously controlling everything that happens in the universe. Now, when we say God is in control, most of us, what we mean by that is not that he's meticulously orchestrating everything that's happening in your life. It means he's got it. Like, it's okay. You're in good hands. God's in control, right? So I want to give you a competing perspective. One, God is in control. In other words, he's got this. It's going to be okay versus God is controlling. And I'm telling you right now, this is a, a belief in the church. It really is. Um, I don't know how much of a sacred cow it is in our community, 
this idea of God being controlling. And, and most people would never use those words to, to talk about God, but they do believe it. They, they really do. Uh, I was listening to a sermon today, a uh, famous preacher had over 70,000 views of this sermon. I mean, this guy is, is enormously popular. And I was listening to his message, and he really was preaching about a God that I don't believe in. One who's just meticulously controlling both everything good and everything bad that's happening in the universe. Um, and, and I'm, you know, most of the time when, when I'm not going to name name or anything like that because this guy's contributed a great deal of good stuff to our faith. I just happen to disagree with this particular thing, and, and I want to go after that thing. I want to chop that sacred cow's head off. Like, I, I'm going to be violent about this. I'm giving you graphic. I've never killed an animal. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> uh, where was I? I make a joke, and I lose my train of thought. Um, so, to God being controlling, right? I believe he's in control. In other words, I believe he's got this. It's going to be okay. You know, I know this. Even though you may die, even though we are outwardly wasting away, all of us who believe in Christ, that's going to be gone. It's going to be wiped away. It's going to be a blip in your memory because he is in control. In other words, guess what? you will be resurrected from the dead and you will have an eternal body that will not corrupt. These things that we experience in this life, there's gonna be a, a farewell statement made to those things and you will never have that again as part of the human experience. There is coming a day when resurrection's gonna happen and it's gonna happen suddenly and we're all suddenly gonna be changed completely and never look back. That's what's gonna happen. In other words, he's got this because the resurrection day is happening. It is going to happen despite what we experience now in this life. Um, so these two competing views, views of God. Most people, when they, when they go after a particular thing, like when they say, you know, God is loving, well, they begin to then build a case for how God is loving. I want to do that. I want to show you that, that God is in control but not controlling and I want to do that by not just telling you why I believe what I believe, but I want to tell you what this other camp believes and dismantle that. I want to destroy that thing and then rebuild. Because I actually think that we all have a theology that needs to be torn down. And there has to be a rebuilding that's going to take place. I know this. Why? Because 70,000 views on YouTube. And that's just one sermon. 70,000 views on YouTube. I don't know, maybe 50,000 of those people are believers. I know that that person's church has thousands and thousands of people who go to that person's church that adhere to his theology or her theology. I'm giving away too much. I need to stop. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote the scriptures. I'm going to tell you what this person says about those scriptures, and then I'm going to tell you what I believe about those scriptures, and you can decide. But if you don't agree with me, how dare you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you ever notice that? It's like, we, you know, never mind. All right, let's start with this passage, Isaiah 55. If you've got your Bible, turn there. If not, we've got a cheat screen up here. Isaiah 55, we're going to look at verse 8 and verse 9. And I've got about seven or eight passages that we're going to go through. Now, hey, everybody hang with me for a second. I'm going into full-blown teacher mode right now. This is going to get deep. We're going to really dissect some scripture tonight. All right, so here's what I need from you. You are going to give me your full attention because you want this sacred cow dead in your life. Got that? Give me everything you got. All right, here we go. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. Next verse. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than yours. Now, let me stop here for a second. Most often, when I've heard this passage quoted to me, it's in reference to some sort of suffering that I'm experiencing. Any of you ever been quoted something like this when you're going through a terrible time? Anybody? I know I'm not the only one here. Now, what's the message meant to be given to us in that moment? When I was uh, uh, a teenager on into my, my late 20s, I used to have this thing called cluster migraines. These migraines would come 
two, three times a day. They'd last anywhere from an hour to four hours, and they'd be there every day for a solid month. When I had these migraines, I was literally debilitated. You could see the, the veins on the side of my head pulsating, and this, this right side of my face would begin to sink down and droop. Jeremy and I were friends during those times. He'd watch me suffer these migraines. I could do nothing when I was having one. And when it was over, the rest of the day was shot. It was like I had gotten out of a boxing match and I was recovering. Every day for a solid month. And I remember, I remember people praying for me. And they would be like, I don't know why you're going through this, Michael, but I know God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. What is the message I'm being sent when they say that in context of my suffering? God is giving it to me for a reason, or he's allowed to have it for a reason, and, and who knows why, but you gotta trust God because his ways are so good. They're so much better than our ways, right? So in our ways, we would exclude suffering, but in God's ways, he's just handing it out, right? Do you realize how out of context that is? I mean, literally, we've just taken it out of its context. We've divorced it from the verses right before it. Do you know what it says in verse 6 and 7? Right before he goes into the, his ways are not my ways, his thoughts are not my thoughts. Let's go there. Look at this, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Next verse. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God. Stop right here for a second. Look at this verse. Let the wicked turn from his evil ways. Let him return to the Lord. God will have compassion on those of us who've done evil. Are you catching that? Then the next one goes into, for my ways are not your ways. What are, the, what are our ways in this passage? Unforgiving. We hold grudges against others. We disqualify others because of their behavior. And all God is wanting to do is show compassion and have mercy on those of us who've done evil. For his ways, in other words, his ways, he's far more forgiving than you are. He's far more gracious than you are. That's how above his ways are than our ways. Catching this? Let's go to the next passage. This is out of Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 13. And again, same time I hear this passage is in context of human suffering. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who has been his counselor and informed him? Let me give you another uh, way of reading this. Who comprehends the mind of the Lord or gives him instruction as his counselor? In other words, who, who of us can understand the thoughts of God? Who's ever tried to give him counsel? In other words, who do you think you are trying to tell God how he should do things? Catching it? It's subtle, but that's how this passage is used. Here's the context. If you look down at uh, verse 1 and 2 from chapter 40, I hope I put this in the notes. Did I put this in the notes? No, I probably didn't. But go ahead and go to Isaiah 40, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to read it for you. It says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she is received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's the context of that Isaiah 40, 13 passage? Israel has been suffering and her suffering is over. You catching this? Now think of Isaiah 40, 13. In that context, God's saying your suffering is done. Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who comprehends the mind of the Lord or gives instruction as his counselor? When you think about a nation that's been carried away and utterly decimated, and then God says, 
Her time of suffering is over. See, none of us thought that she could ever return. None of us thought that God could ever do anything good out of a nation that had gone so far off. And yet, look what he's done. None of us could have come up with a plan like that. He's so strategic. I mean, let's just put this in, in the broader context of, uh, of Israel today. Can you think of any other nation in all of human history that's been 2,000 years removed from its homeland and then suddenly established overnight? Spread across the globe. Now, look, my family is Jewish. I just want you to think about something regarding Israel's ethnicity. Uh, my family is all Jewish. So when I think about myself, I think of myself as a Jew because I, I am. That's me. Now, how many of you in this room are from uh, your family descended from Ireland and you think of yourself as Irish? I mean, fairly rarely do we refer to ourselves or ethnicity as Irish. Many of you are like, I'm American. But see, when I say what I am, I'm like, I'm Jewish. That's my ethnicity. Like, there's something so incredibly unique about what God has done there. Uh, sorry, that's sort of a side topic. But my point is this. Nobody could have come up with a plan like that. That's how incredible God is. This isn't how God is controlling us. It's not to teach us about how in the midst of our suffering, who are you to question God? Now, there's another passage that we're going to go through, and it's the potter and the clay. How many of you ever read that passage? Potter and the clay. Who are you to question the potter? You're just a lump of clay, right? I'm going to hit that one next week. We're going to dive head in, I mean, head first into that passage. And, and you're going to walk away going, he's better than I thought he was. It doesn't mean what you think it means. He's better than he th you think he is, I swear. As I've learned this stuff, here's been the result. I trust God more. I pray more. When the stuff hits the fan, one thing I remain certain of, it's okay no matter what kind of uh, trial comes against my family because at the end of the day, I know God is good and that he does have this. That's the, the, the groundedness I have in my faith. This is why when trials come, we're supposed to stand, stand fast, trust that he's good, wait in the midst of this. Now, whether you experience his redemption here in this life doesn't matter or not because you will experience it, experience it in the next life. Many of us get to experience it here and now. We really do because that's how quickly he's working his redemptive plans. Um, but not only that, let me just keep going on this. This passage is going to be quoted in the New Testament several times. Uh, in Romans, it's used to explain how God's mercy, after being rejected by the Jews, after he was rejected by the Jews, it was given, salvation was given over to the Gentiles. So who comprehends the mind of the Lord? The question is a rhetorical one because no one saw how Israel's rejection of God could result in the acceptance of all of mankind. Who knows the mind of the Lord? How strategic, how incredibly amazing and good is he that look at, even though he was rejected by the people he called his own, he made salvation available for all of mankind. See, most of us, when we get hurt by someone we love, we shut ourselves off from ever experiencing the potential pain again. So God, when he was rejected by those he called his own, Instead of shutting himself off, he opened up his heart even wider to all of mankind. I didn't have that in my notes. That just came to me. Can you remind me of that later? We're recording this, right? Thank you, Jesus. Uh, it's also used in the Corinthians. It says, we're told that the answer to the apparent rhetorical questions, the, the answer is believers get to know the mind of the Lord. Oh, that's, yeah, okay. I just reminded myself again. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to advise him? But we have the mind of Christ. As part of new covenant faith, we're no longer asking the question, what is God doing? He actually gives us answers. In the midst of things that look confusing, he can step into the believer's life and through the body of Christ, we have the collective mind of Christ. That's good news. It's ironic how these two passages I've just shown you are used to speak about this controlling, uh, sort of distant, 
but always in the midst of everything bad that's happening to us. How that God is actually meant to show us quite the opposite, that he's completely other than and that he's better than we thought he was. Isn't that ironic? Check out this passage. Go over to Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Now this was, how many of you ever did the topical memory system when you were younger? Anybody know what that is? Nobody knows what that is. Okay, a few of you navigators in the room. Put your hand up high and proud. Come on, girl. There you go. I used to do this when I was a high school kid. I would, I would meet with my young life leader, and we would memorize scripture, and, and we would memorize these passages. And I always hated this passage. I did, because it was divorced from its context once again. I would memorize this passage by itself. Now, let's look at it. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should, well, in my passage, it says, change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Now, let me tell you how, how those who, who espouse a controlling God use this passage. Um, they overinflate God's sovereignty. Now, let, let, let's tackle that word. God's sovereignty is what we're talking about. Did you pick up on that? Okay, I, the cat's out of the bag. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. Now, is a king sovereign in his country because he's meticulously controlling the decisions of every one of his subjects? But I've heard this taught that if, if a single decision is being made outside of God's determined plan, outside of God's will, then he cannot be sovereign. But make sense of that for me here because last I checked, the king is not sovereign in his land because he's meticulously controlling every decision that everybody makes, but rather that he's still able to accomplish his will amidst those who would compete against it. Yeah, and guess what his will is for your life? Resurrection. He's going to accomplish it no matter how many lives the enemy tries to take. I think of my friend Terry Lindsay who just passed away. I don't believe that that was God's timing. When Terry passed, I'm telling you, there were plans that Terry was going to bring into our next global board meeting. And we got robbed of those plans. We didn't get to hear all the plans that God had given Terry in that moment because enemy came in and wiped him out. Now, the only reason I don't think he was raised, wasn't, the only reason I think he wasn't raised from the dead is because I don't think he wanted to come back. I think when you compare this life to what's coming, none of us would want to come back. That's why I think we have so few resurrections from the dead. <laughs> Truthfully, look, this is my opinion. I, this isn't like God speaking. I'm just telling you what I'm watching happen and how I'm interpreting that event. Um, Okay, that's not sort of why this passage, but let me go back to this passage. Uh, often when I've heard this read, it's it sort of, and when I used to read it as a teenager, I thought what this meant was God just sort of does what he wants. No one could expect God to change his mind. Who are you to tell God what to do? Right? But what do you do with the number of other scriptures that say just the opposite? And check this out. If you read the very next verse, it says, Behold, I've received a command to bless. And what he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. So what are the kind of plans that none of us are going to convince God to change his mind of? Plans to bless people. No matter how much we want them to be cursed. <laughs> Did you know that's what's there? Now, how many of you, navigators, put your hand back up. How many of you realized that was the passage right after that? Does that shed some light on some things? Like he's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. In other words, when God promises something, we can rest assured he's going to fulfill it. For instance, you're going to be raised from the dead. What's one expectation you can have? You're going to be raised from the dead. Because God's not a man that he changes his mind. He's not subject to the whims of everything that happens in his life like we are. He's better. Next passage, Proverbs 16.33. Now, this one's kind of silly to me, but I threw it in here because this famous pastor used this passage to talk about how God is arbitrarily doing everything. Um, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every decision Whenever a lost is, ca or a lost is cast, 
whenever, a, whenever lots are cast. Now, he went on to say, everything that happens in Vegas, as far as gambling, it's by God's design. Every single roll of the dice, God has controlled. He's determined exactly what it's going to be. Your loss and your gains, it's all in God's hands. Every board game you play, every dice of the Monopoly roll, God determined. I'm not kidding. This is the stuff this person was teaching. Now, hold on a second. Let's talk about what a lot is. In context, Israelites would cast lots. It was like rolling a dice, but it wasn't on arbitrary things like gambling or board games. It was to make huge decisions about what to do next, which is a very biblical thing. How do I know this? James chapter 1. Go to James 1 real quick. We're going to look at verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, what does wisdom mean? Okay, you're in a situation and you don't know what to do. What do you need? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who will give to all generously without reproach. That means fault finding. He's not going to go through the list of all of your sins and all the things you did bad to determine whether or not he's going to give you wisdom when you ask for it. So without fault finding, and it will be given to him. Stop for a second. Can you see how seeking God's advice is something God is encouraging through James? This isn't just like God willy-nilly deciding what role on a dice in a board game or in Vegas is going to happen. This is about seeking his counsel. Do you see how Proverbs 16.33 is once again divorced from its context? Let me tell you what, what uh, this, this is something we like to call cherry picking. It means randomly picking and choosing Bible verses to support a case, but when you look at those verses in their context, they don't actually mean what that person says they mean. So here, here's, but here's the, 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 the hard part about this. Look at this. And it will be given to him. Next verse. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. Now when it says faith without any doubting, does that mean you're, you have to be certain that God's going to give you the wisdom you're asking for? Is that what that means? Some of us are going, yes. Some of us are going, some of us are like, I have no idea. What does it mean? Look, it's not talking about a psychological certainty that something is going to happen. Okay, what he means is that person must ask with, uh, in faith without any doubting. In other words, when God gives you the wisdom, don't sit there and doubt whether or not you should go that pathway. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed about by the wind. That man, go to the next verse. For that man ought, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, verse 8, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now think about this. You ask God for wisdom, and then he gives it to you, and you're going, well, I don't know if I should take that wisdom, God. That's what he means. He means... Don't sit there wavering back and forth on whether or not you should do what I'm telling you. Here's the thing. Sometimes God tells you to do things that don't make sense to you. And it's in that place that you're supposed to trust he's good and he's the rewarder of those who seek him. That his plans for you really are to bless you and not to hurt you. That's what it's talking about. Um. Seeking the counsel of the Lord is something highly encouraged. This is about uh, seeking God's counsel, not about arbitrary decisions. Next passage. I, again, I, I had to use that because that's the passage this guy used. Uh, Matthew 10, 29. This one seems even more, like th th some of these are just so silly to me. Uh, Matthew 10, 29. And I don't mean to sound condescending. Like, I, I really don't. Forgive me if that's what I'm doing. I, I just... I'm looking at how common these things are and how quickly people believe them, but without checking to see what the context of these passages are. It's super important that we weigh what's taught. Um, because our view of God is affected by this. It really is. Your ability to trust God is, is on the line here. That's what's being jeopardized. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, when I heard this taught, the idea was 
every single death of a sparrow is ordained by God. Every BB bird that fell out of the sky in Oklahoma, or sorry, Arkansas, remember when all those BB birds died? Every single BB bird that died, that fell out of the sky and died, God had ordained. He knew it would happen. It wasn't done apart from his will. Now, I mean, it's supposed to sort of give us comfort. Like, and here's the, but I tell you, it's a false comfort. The comfort in this that many people espousing this controlling view of God give us is that God is intimately involved in every single thing that happens on the earth. Now, you could see why that would be comforting, right? But that's not what this passage means. How do we know that? Because if you go to one of the other gospels where the same message is given, it's phrased slightly differently. Go over to Luke chapter 12, verse 6. I told you we might be beating a dead horse on this, but I'm going to just keep hitting this until we really like get it. Um, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Do you see the difference? The point in this passage is, of, the, of this passage isn't to show you that God is ordaining everything that's happening. It's to show you that none of those things are forgotten. And how much more important is your life than a sparrow's? If God remembers the suffering of a sparrow, how much more does he remember your suffering? When we lose a loved one, when we lose a loved one, isn't it good to know that God's not going to forget that loved one when the day of resurrection comes? Isn't it good to know that he's literally got every single person in mind? He's completely aware of everything that's happening, and he's got a plan to do something about it. Even, even little things like that. And, and, man, some of the greatest comforts I've experienced by the Holy Spirit have come not when God told me how he was going to fix the situation, but when he told me that he knew about it. Just knowing that he knows is enough. Uh, I remember Stacy McIntyre. How many of y'all know the McIntyres? Okay, when I met them, well, I, I'd met them previously, but I, when I really got to know them is when I got a, a, a Facebook message from their oldest daughter saying, hey, my mom has had an allergic reaction. Would you be willing to come over and pray for my mom? I say, absolutely. So Joe Newton and I, we went over to their house I didn't know who they were, and I remember driving into this place, and I was like, this is like the Von Trapp family home. This is a gigantic archway, like these huge ceilings. Like, I'm like, what have I just walked into? And, and I go and sit down, and I see Stacy, and she's got, she looked like a, a raccoon. She had this inflamed uh, uh, ring around her eyes that was completely black and blue. I mean, it looked like she had gotten punched in both eyes. And she had had some sort of allergic reaction to something, and it caused her eyes to swell up, and she looked like a raccoon. So we're going to pray for healing. First thing I do is, is I begin to pray, and, I, and God immediately shows me a vision. And I see a picture of her, and she's crocheting on a pillow. Now, I'll be honest. I don't even know what crocheting is. I don't. But I knew that this was crocheting and that she was doing this on a pillow. And I looked at her, and I said, um, Stacy this is going to seem like a weird question. Do you crochet on pillows? And she and all of the girls just started laughing. She's got three daughters. They all just start giggling, you know, like little girls giggling. Uh, and I'm like, so you crochet on pillows? She's like, yes. I said, why do you think God would show me that? She goes, I don't know. I said, well, maybe if he knows about those little, small, unimportant details of your life, how much more does he know about what you're going through right now? Two days later, her eyes are completely cleared up. But remember what I said? Where, when did the comfort start? Just knowing that he knows. For most of us, that's all we need to know. We just need to know that he knows. That's the point of this. God knows about the smallest things. How much more does he know about the more important things? He's better than we think he is. I'm going to keep saying that. Because in the midst of you having your wife pass out on the bathroom floor, I want you to remind yourself, he's better than I think he is. He's better than I think he is. In the midst of every negative thing you may be experiencing in your life, you can know this one thing. He's better than I think he is. I don't know how this thing will get redeemed, but I know he's capable of redeeming everything. In other words... There is not a tear that you will shed in this life that cannot be redeemed by God. 
Here's another one. Exodus 4.11. I'm running out of time. We're going we're gonna to get through this. Exodus 4.11. The Lord said to him, who has made man, man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now that's a difficult one, huh? How is, this, is, this is God speaking with Moses. Moses is complaining, um, hey, God, I think you got the wrong guy. Uh, it just so happens I can't be your spokesperson for the entire nation of Israel. I've got this thing called a speech impediment. You don't want me speaking. So here's the response. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, this is a confusing passage. How many of you are going, wait a minute, hold on a second. I thought it was God who healed the blind, the mute, the deaf, the lame. Anybody? I know I'm not the only one. What are we supposed to make of this? Okay, context here. Moses is saying he's got a stutter. He's got a speech impediment. You got the wrong guy. God is saying, do you not realize who I am? I mean, think of the question Moses is asking. Where is this question even being asked? Well, there's a burning bush and a man standing in the fire. And he's not being burned, nor is the bush. And he's speaking to Moses. It's either that or just the bush itself is speaking to him, which in that case, he's on something. But, <laughs> but, but here, here's the thing. He's sitting here having this conversation with God. What's the point of this passage? Uh, hey, Moses... I got this. It's okay. Your stutter, your speech impediment is not a hindrance to me. I'm God. Now, here's the difficult thing. I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. It seems like God makes people mute and deaf and blind and all the other things. But something I would encourage you to do, don't make a theology out of an Old Testament passage that the New Testament clearly contradicts. Do you hear me on this? Don't make a theology out of an Old Testament passage that the New Testament clearly contradicts. You've got one passage that's sort of explicitly stating that. Now, now here's the thing. You're going to see a lot in the Old Testament that's attributed to God. Just go read the book of Job. The number of times that Job will say things about God that none of us would agree with today. I mean, just, it's all throughout. It's, see, most of us, when we read the book of Job, we read the first few chapters, and then we read the last couple chapters. We usually skip through all that boring stuff in the middle. But, I mean, who wants to really listen to this guy complaining all the time, right? I mean, it's kind of understandable, but, but there is good stuff in there because you're going to see Job, not just Job's friends, Job accusing God of all kinds of things that we wouldn't accuse on anybody. I mean, like some really evil stuff in there that he's accusing God of. And we just sort of forget all that stuff when we read that book. But it's there. Now, I'm not saying we should agree with Job's theology in his view of God. If anything, I'm telling you, the New Testament sheds a lot of light on what people thought of God in the Old Testament. I mean, that first few chapters in Hebrews shows us we were just seeing a shadow. Then Jesus showed up and showed us what he was really like. So how did Jesus respond to all those things? I never saw him doling out blindness and lameness and, and deafness. He didn't do that. If anything, he was coming up against that stuff, destroying that stuff. Now, either God and Jesus are having a conflict or they're not, and there's just something off about Moses' view of God. Who would you rather trust, Jesus or, or Moses? Who do you think knew God better, Jesus or Moses? I know, I'm sort of like tongue-in-cheek making these references, but this stuff is serious. Okay, next one. Isaiah 46, uh, chapter 46, verse 9 through 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish my good pleasure, calling a bird, from prey, a bird of prey from the east, the man of purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. This is meant to teach us that God is the one who's completely other, transcendent, unlike us. That he's capable of doing anything he wants. Again, same message is there though. He does what he wants and who are you to question him? There's another uh, pastor in the Metroplex. I've heard him quote this passage out of Psalm 115. It says, God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. 
And what that pastor always fails to read is the very last verse of the exact same chapter, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. See, when you hear that passage, divorced from its context, divorced from the rest of the passage, it, it seems to be teaching one thing, but really it's teaching something else. And I'm going to say the same thing about this. What would you do? Now, now I, I believe that God really does fulfill what he promises. So, for instance, he promises that Jesus is going to return. I believe nobody's going to stop the return of Christ. None of us are like him. None of us are powerful enough to stop that from happening. I believe he's going to raise us from the dead and give us new life and new bodies. None of us are capable of stopping it. That's how much more powerful he is than all of us. Um, but I would ask you this question. So, so the other thing that, that's taught by this, and, and I'll just give you a quotation directly. It says, if something happened that God did not purpose to happen, he would say, I didn't intend for that to happen. In other words, this pastor believes that if anything happened outside of God's will then it, that, that could surprise God, then he must not be truly in control. He must not truly be sovereign. And this passage almost seems to teach that. If you could stop God's purpose, then God must not be sovereign. He must not really be all-powerful. I, I don't believe that's what this passage is meant to teach us. Um, because what do you do with the number of times where it does seem like God is surprised? in scripture, and I can show you some instances of that. What do you do with things where God expresses his own regret? For instance, um, I regret having made Saul king. I regret having made mankind. Israel, I thought she would do this, but instead she did that. Now, many of us would say, well, I mean, that's just God sort of showing us what he's like. We can, we can never possibly understand who God really is, so the scriptures are just sort of helping us to get a picture of it, right? Well, let me ask you a question. If you were to say that you regretted something, how else could you more clearly communicate it than to say, I regret this? Do you see how by theologizing those passages, we're actually taking away God's ability, ability to communicate clearly with us? Is this, this one might be going over our heads. Anybody confused by this? Okay, I'm not sure if you're getting this one or not. This one's confusing. The number of times that you see this, though, and, and, and let me just drive this home. Open up to Jeremiah chapter 3. We're going to talk about something that does not happen according to God's plan. Very clearly does not happen according to God's plan. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and becomes another man's wife, he may not take her back again. Doing that would utterly defile the land. But you, Israel, have given yourself as a prostitute to other gods. So what makes you think you can return to me, says the Lord. Now notice how personal that God is making this. The people he had chosen to be his bride. He, he's making this, this uh, relationship that he had with Israel. And he's helping us see how very intimate it was supposed to be, like a man with his bride. And his bride has cheated on him. Look up at the hilltops and consider this. You've had relations with other gods on every single one of those hills. You waited for those gods like a thief lying in wait in the desert. You defiled the land with your prostitution to these other gods. That is why the rains have been withheld, the spring rains have not come, yet in spite of this, you are obstinate as a prostitute. You refuse to be ashamed of what you have done. Even now you say to me, you are my father. You have been my faithful companion since I was young. You will not always be angry with me, will you? You will not be mad at me forever, will you? That is what you say, but you continually do all the evil that you're capable of. Does this sound like a God who's aloof and unaffected from the decisions of mankind? Or does this sound like a, a person who's made himself vulnerable for the sake of love? Like, here's the truth. Love isn't possible without vulnerability. It literally is not possible. The moment you make a decision to love is the moment you make yourself, you make yourself susceptible 
to every kind of pain that love can have. God, in his decision to love us, has made himself vulnerable to man. And that sounds like something impossible to us because we none of us like thinking of God as vulnerable. Any of you like thinking of God as vulnerable? I mean, that's scary. It sounds like he's not in control. No, it just means he's not controlling. Keep reading. When Josiah was the king of Judah, the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, you have no doubt seen what that wayward Israel has done. You have seen how she went up on every hill and under every green tree to give herself like a prostitute to other gods. Yet, even after she had done all that, I thought she might come back to me. God thought this would happen. He thought after she'd done all of this evil, she'd see how bad it was and return. How can God think something that doesn't come to pass unless his will is not always perfectly followed? I thought she would return to me, but she did not. And her sister, unfaithful Judah, saw what she had done. Go and shout this message to my people in the countries in the north. Tell them, come back to me. See, even after this, even after she's done this, what is God saying? Come back to me. God's ways are not our ways. Even though he's been cheated on, even though he's been rejected, even though he's been slapped across the face and called all kinds of evil, he's still calling mankind back to himself. We blame God for all kinds of evil. I mean, it's written into our culture. When a natural disaster, hailstorm hits your car, demolishes the roof on your house, what do the insurance claims call it? You see, we blame God for a lot, don't we? We've done evil against him, we've hurt his heart, and yet he still continually calls to us to come back to him. says, come back to me, wayward Israel, says the Lord. I will not continue to look on you with displeasure, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. However, you must confess that you've done wrong, that you've rebelled against the Lord. You must confess. See, many people, that's the hardest part, is acknowledging that we did something wrong to begin with. But here's the thing. There is no forgiveness without a recognition that you need it. You can't be forgiven of something unless you actually acknowledge that you need to be forgiven of that very thing. So, someone else watching TV? Who's, come on, people. It's reading it out loud. <laughs> uh, I'll finish this real quick. Come back to me, my wayward sons. I wish I had his voice. Uh, I am true. I am your true master. If you do, I will take one of you from each town and two of you from each family group. I will bring you back to Zion. I will give you leaders who will be faithful to me. They will lead you with knowledge and insight. He's better. He just is. C.S. Lewis says this, and reflecting on God's love for mankind, says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up, and, uh, lock it up safe in the casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Man, that's good. That's why he's C.S. Lewis. Huh? It's like, come on, man. God, give me that. I mean, that's true, right? Look, many of us, especially when you come to a new church, which we are, we, we have this thing we do to protect ourselves. For instance, like waiting for somebody to invite me to something and then being a victim when they don't and saying, well, nobody ever invited me, right? 
Like we, we do that, we do that to protect ourselves because it's safer than feeling the potential of rejection. But, but that's the security of God. I mean, that's how secure he is. He continually puts his heart out there for, with the potential, knowing that, knowing that people definitely will reject him. Not just that they might, that they will. And yet he continually does that. And we're called to be like him. And that's scary. I would tell you that the theology that says that God is controlling everything, it's a false security. Because it keeps, keeps us safe from the vulnerability of potential suffering and heartache. And I'm telling you, that's not the God we worship. This God is vulnerable. And you know how I know that? Go look at the cross that Jesus sat on. And tell me that God is not vulnerable. Um, here's your response to the stuff that you're going on in life, that's going on in life. First off, reject this idea that God is doing this to you. God is not the author of your pain. Do you hear me on this? He's not the one authoring all the trials and difficulties you've had in your life. That's not God. We're told that, it, I mean, think about this. Does the scriptures read, God came to steal, kill, and destroy? Does it say that? It's not God doing this to you. Reject that thought. And then I want you to have a response to the person who is coming after you. He steals something from you. You go steal something from him. I'm thinking of, of one of our elders, Terry. T Terry's life the legacy, I mean, his legacy will live on, but I mean, his life was cut short. There were years that we were supposed to have with him that were stolen from us. So my response to that is I'm going to go and steal some of the enemy's turf. He may have taken somebody's life that was here and now. I'm going to go take some for eternity. I'm going to become a little bit more bold about my gospel. And I'm going to take back permanent territory, eternal territory. The, the suffering that my family has gone through, I, I'm, I'm just like, I think of the Hans, the, the, the loss of their child. Like I'm, I am going to pray for, for children to be raised from the dead. I'm going after it. Look, I don't know, what's yours? What has he stolen from you? Let's take a second. I want you to pray and I want you to ask him, God, what of the enemies can I steal back?